Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our reunion online this morning. Whether or not you're part of the Church of the City family or you've been visiting with us for the last number of weeks, I'm so excited and glad and honored that you would take your Sunday morning to spend time with us or whenever you're watching this reunion. We'd love to connect with you. If you're not currently part or connected in some way to the Church of the City family or community, we would love to connect with you. And you can do that by going to guelph.churchofthecity.ca slash connect. And there you'll see a little small form. Just take a couple of your details and we'll have one of our staff reach out to you and connect with you. Well, over the last number of weeks, we've had the great blessing of having people from our church family share reasons why they give to the local church. And so I want to thank each and every single one of you who have been giving in this time in a sacrificial way towards our church family. God continues to provide and he continues to meet our needs. But what we're recognizing is that as time goes on, some of the needs of our community and of our church family might increase. And so I want to challenge us, especially those of us who still have income at this time. You know, God is really, he, we are his family. And like any family who in different seasons of their family life, more is expected of certain people in different ways. This is a season where those of us who still have jobs, who still have income, I believe are being asked to give more than we have in the past. It's kind of like if you're in a family and someone in your family breaks their ankle, everyone else needs to step up, take on the chores, contribute in a new way. And that's really the way that I see this time for us as our church family. And so if you are somebody that still has an income, is still receiving uh, some sort of financial support in any way, would you consider continuing to give and continuing to give sacrificially so that our church family can be cared for and then we can love and serve and care for the community of Guelph and some of the long and overseas and international missionaries that we support on the other side of the world who are continuing to do good work. Again, I wanna thank you for your giving, your sacrificial uh, heart in that as you give cheerfully and uh, God bless you as you continue to give sacrificially. Hi, greetings. My name's uh, Brad Woods, I'm a, I'm a storyteller here in town, and, uh, and Matt has asked me if I'd come and, and uh, join you folks and tell a story, um, which I'm, I really appreciate. It's a real uh, a thrill and an honor to be here with you and to be uh, sharing in the, a part of what you're doing, and I really appreciate um, uh, Matt being willing to share uh, his and your time with me. So, so thanks very much for including me in what you folks are doing. Um, I was gonna I was gonna put this story in context a bit um, biblically and and spiritually, but I I decided that I would just rather just tell the story and and uh, and let it speak for itself. Um, I, I can't tell who who exactly I'm speaking to and what age you are, but to uh, to start I just want to say that when I was a kid that before there were milk bags and and cartons and that sort of thing we would get our milk in these jugs. Some of you would remember their big sort of plastic geometric shapes with a little handle up near the top. And the only way you could tell what kind of milk was in them was a different colored foil, uh, a foil cap that they put on the top. And then when you were done with it, you could take it back to the store and get a nickel or a dime or something like that. Now, when I was a kid, eight or nine years old, the closest corner store, con convenience store, was about a five minute walk from where I lived. When I was, like I say, nine years old, 
I was allowed to go there by myself. It's not that I needed anything from the store or even necessarily wanted anything, but when you're given that kind of freedom, that, that liberty, you know, you, you take it pretty quick. So now the rest of this story I want to tell like it's a, a scene from a movie because that's the way I picture it. That's the way I remember it in my mind's eye. And so that's how I want to retell it. So the opening scene, the opening shot is, is me, a shot of me, an eight-year-old me walking to the store by myself, just enjoying the, the sunshine and the good weather and that kind of thing. And I'm walking along, minding my own business. When all of a sudden, from over my shoulder, I hear, hey, and I turn around and I see Andrew riding towards me on his bicycle. And he's got about five or six of these milk jugs sort of wound around his fingers on either side of his handlebars as he's riding towards me. Now, Andrew is seven years older than me, six years older than me, I suppose, and a bully, nothing else, complete bully, that's it, full stop. I mean, this is the point in my life when when everybody you know, you know, is, is either, um, nice or funny or scary. There is no in-between. There is no sort of middle ground. And Andrew was definitely scary. And so I, I turned around and just, you know, pretended I didn't even hear him, just kept on walking, hoped against hope that he would just leave me alone. But the next shot, the next scene is where the, where the screen seems to widen. And Andrew pulls up beside me uh, on his bicycle. And right as he gets up beside me, he slams on the brakes and then drops all the milk jugs. And he looks at me and he says, Hey Woods, look what you made me do. Now inside, <clears throat> in, my, in my inner voice, in my inner monologue, which you can hear because this is like a scene from a movie, I'm saying stuff like, leave me alone, Andrew, buzz off. I didn't do anything. But what I'm really saying is more like, oh, uh, sorry about that, Andrew. Uh, uh, let, me, let me help you with that. Let, let me get those for you. But before I had a chance to do anything, he's off his bicycle and he two hands shoves me right into my little eight-year-old chest and sends me head over tea kettle into the ditch behind me. Now, the next shot is like a close-up. Uh, and it's where, you know, it's, it's Andrew coming in for the kill, coming in to finish me off. And he's got a clenched fist, and he's got clenched teeth, and he's got crazy eyes. And he pulls back his fist when all of a sudden, from over his shoulder, we hear, Hey! We turn and look, and here comes my brother, my oldest brother, riding towards us with six of his friends. Now, my brother is like seven years older than me, so a year older than Andrew, essentially. And they're riding in perfect V formation. And, and, you know, because it's like a scene from a movie, they're in perfect V formation with my, with my brother at the front of the pack while the theme song from The Magnificent Seven begins to mount. It's amazing. And they get up there. And when they get up to where, you know, Andrew and I used to be, Andrew is now long gone. He's, he's taken off on his bicycle. And they find me alone in this ditch. You know, I'm surrounded by empty milk jugs and I'm covered in tears. But this is the shot. This is, this is the, the scene. This is the money shot <laughs> because this is when the, when the sky is clear and the, 
and, and the clouds part and the sky is bluer and the air is cleaner than, than anything I've ever experienced. It's amazing. It's, it's incredible. It's this magical moment because in, in what was just a, a, a matter of seconds, I went from, from like freedom to, 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 to fear, to, to being captured, to being threatened, to, you know, to freedom again, back to liberty, to, to salvation. It's incredible. It's an incredible moment. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's marvelous. It's miraculous. The ironic thing is, I was always way more afraid of my brother than I ever was of Andrew. You know, with Andrew, it was all speculation, all sort of rumors. I never knew what he could really do. But my brother, oh, he was so big. He was so strong. He knew so many bad words. He was definitely scary, but as it turns out, he was also really nice. And so he and his buddies came and, you know, took me and all these empty milk jugs and we went to the corner store and with the money they got from Andrew's milk jugs, we bought chocolate bars and cream sodas and stuff, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> so the. The, the scene ends, it's a, it's a shot of, of me and a bunch of teenagers sitting out on a curb outside of a variety store eating chocolate bars and drinking cans of soda. And I think to myself, I wonder if Andrew's ever nice. I wonder if he's ever funny. Fade to black, cue music. Thanks for listening. Well, I love uh, the stories that Brad Woods tells. I had an opportunity at one point to be part of a recording where he told about six or seven stories to a small live audience so that there could be some audience reaction. I've so appreciated his storytelling and the way that he served our community here in Guelph over the years and the, and the local church beyond uh, in the world uh, through his storytelling. And the reason I asked Brad to share a story with us today is kind of twofold. One is just to enjoy and to appreciate this story that he told about himself as a young kid. But then secondly, to illustrate for us the reality that when we come to the Bible, when we come to the scriptures, we're, we're, we're being introduced and we're being in like really getting connected to a story. Sometimes what I can do is I can read the pages of the scriptures and kind of put it aside and forget that there's real people that we're talking about here. There's real stories, there's real situations, there's real identities. And so I hoped that as we could hear a story from Brad today, that that would begin to illustrate for us a reminder that when we come to the gospel of John, we're dealing with real people, with real emotions, with real identities that Jesus is entering into and he's engaging with. With that, why don't you get your Bible? We're gonna be in John Eight this morning. We're going to be finishing off John 8 verses 39 to 59. And while you do that, why don't we also take a moment at this time to pause to consider where it is, where we're, how we're feeling. We'd invite Jesus into that place. This is maybe a grounding exercise. And once you've done that, I'll pray. And then we'll be, begin this morning's sermon and message uh, on John 8, 39 to 59. And so, God, we thank you for this morning and this opportunity to study your word. God, I pray that you would challenge our hearts, that you would challenge our identity, 
And God, that you would teach us this morning and that you'd pastor us and that you'd counsel us. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, when I was in high school, I was in a band. My band was called The Return Address. And I got involved with this band and the kind of the, the, the way the band formed was in law class. I think I was in grade 11 or 12. And there were some older guys that were doing a victory lap after they graduated in grade 12, kind of doing some extra credits. And they had started, they'd started a band and they were looking for a vocalist. And they had heard that I was a singer. And so I said, well, hey, and they invited me to come to an audition. So I went to this audition and I got involved in this band scene. So I started in this band as the vocalist. And then I eventually became the drummer and the clean vocalist. And then we had our bass player who was the screamer. And so we were called The Return Address. I think you might be even able to find some of our music still on myspace.com. Some of you maybe remember myspace.com. And in this season of high school, I realized as I think back to it that I began to build my identity of who I believed I was and what, what was of greatest value, what mattered, where I found meaning from this band, from this band, The Return Address. We played some local shows. We recorded some music. It's probably, honestly, where I first got interested in getting tattoos and in having spacers. It was really a formative time for me around building my identity around this band. Then when I, when I graduated high school, I ended up quitting the band, uh, much to the disdain of my friends, my, my co-bandmates. And I went to Tyndale to begin preparing to become a pastor, to work towards pastoral work. And I remember that this was really kind of an, an, an end to that identity of being in this band and kind of a rediscovery of what it actually meant to follow Jesus. And that's really where kind of Jesus began to really grip my heart as far as teaching me new things about myself. Well, then I graduated university and I got a career, my first career, my first pastoral gig as a youth pastor. And I began to struggle with finding my identity in my pastoral work. And even to this day, if you kind of come to present day, I struggle with that, finding my identity, finding my worth, finding my significance in what I do for a living in being a pastor. And then in some of the other things in my life, like being a father, uh, being a father can be a place, or maybe for you, it's being a mother of uh, being a place where we find our identity, where we find significance or value. Now, this idea of identity, Henry Nouwen says that when people answer the question of who am I around identity, they, they find it in three Three different places. For some people, it's what they do, or as you can imagine, maybe what they don't do. For some people, it's what other people say about them, or as you can imagine on the other side, what people don't say about them. Or for others, it's what they have or what they don't have. And many people build their identity around this. Identity is actually a pretty popular concept in our culture today. And now people are finding their identity in their race, in their sex, in their gender, in their nationality in their religion, in their family of origin, in their career, in their particular culture, language, in their disability if they have one, in education and occupation, and even their social class. And the concept and the story around identity of our culture is to find who your true self is, your inner self, and have it released. And don't worry about the people that speak against that. Have your inner child, your inner true self, your true identity released. At least that's the idea that we're told in our culture about identity. Don't let anyone hold you back from being who you really are. And then what happens is that we begin to tell ourselves a story. And so then we have stories that we tell ourselves around where our meaning comes from, around where our significance, where our value and where our purpose comes from. 
Now, the reason that I'm talking and the reason that I'm introducing this message with the idea of identity is that over the last number of weeks and into the other, the rest of the Gospel of John, we continue to see this struggle and this opposition between Jesus and the Jews. And the reason that the Jews are struggling with Jesus is because of the Jews and where they found their identity. Or in other words, the story that they then told themselves about their meaning, their value and significance, and Jesus challenging them. He's challenging the core of their identity, where they find their value, where they find their significance and where they find their meaning. And the truth of Jesus is that Jesus wants to challenge you in the places that you're finding your identity in the things that you do and what people say about you and the things that you have or any host of the other things that I mentioned of where you find your identity. Now, what Jesus is going to say is that not that these things don't matter as far as descriptions about us, but he's going to communicate as he was trying to communicate to the Jews and he was communicating to the Jews that those things are not the most important things about them, that something else is. And this is the message that we come to understand in the gospel well, with that, why don't you go with me to the text? I want to go backwards a little bit uh, into verses 31 to 38 to really expose some of the identity stuff that these Jews are wrestling with and, and feeling and experiencing and how Jesus challenges it. And then we'll jump into our text of 39 to 59. So 31 to 38, Spencer finished with this last week, but I want to kind of jump in there to expose some of this identity stuff. So the audience here in verse 31, we read kind of those that Jesus is communicating with are Jews who had believed in him. Now, this isn't a foreign concept to John. If you've been following along in the gospel of John, John would oftentimes, he's talking about people that believed in Jesus, but as time goes on, it seems like they had fickle faith or not real faith or belief in Jesus at all. And Jesus challenges these Jews who had believed in him he says this to them, if you abide in my word, this is what Spencer taught last week, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He's saying, if you want to truly trust that you are believing in me, then you're going to abide in my word, that you're going to believe it and you're going to hold fast to it until the end, until the end of your life, to abide, to rest, to delight in Jesus' word and to stick to it. And what he claims is that if you don't hold fast to his word, that you're enslaved to something. And so John is challenging the Jewish readers to carefully consider and understand what faith in Jesus means and how it's going to challenge their identities. Now, the Jews to this abide comment respond to Jesus by saying, we are offspring of Abraham and we have never been enslaved to anyone. In other words, what they're saying is, we don't need to be freed, Jesus. We are free. They're saying we have an identity and our identity is true. They have what I saw one commentator uh, comment on them is that they have an inherited privilege complex an inherited privilege complex, which actually, as Jesus is exposing, is preventing them from holding to Jesus's teaching. Jesus then responds to this complex by saying that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. D.A. Carson comments on this in his commentary to say, not only does the practice of sin prove that one is a slave to sin, but the practice of sin actively enslaves. For Jesus then, the ultimate bondage is not enslavement to a political or economic system, but vicious slavery to moral failure, to rebellion against the God 
who made us. This past week in Alpha, we were talking about the concept of sin. And I'll never forget when the, the definition or understanding of sin was really exposed and broadened for me. And it was through Tim Keller's teaching on the prodigal son. You've maybe heard the parable before of a father who had two sons and the younger son rebels against his father and says, I want my inheritance money. And he goes and he spends his time in reckless living. He then comes to the end of himself and he returns to the father and the father graciously receives him. The parable then switches, however, to the older brother who's out in the fields and he hears that this party is beginning in the house and he and his entitlement communicates to the father and says, why are you throwing a party for my younger brother? I've been here this whole time serving you. Why would we give a party to him? And what this parable really exposes is that both the younger son and the older son are separated from the love of the father. The younger son through his reckless living run away and the older son through his pride. And so what sin really is, is delighting and resting in something other than God, trusting something other than God. And what Jesus is exposing to the Jews here in their lineage complex, their privilege, identity of privilege and complex is he's saying, you're not trusting in me. You're trusting in your lineage and you're trusting in your own obedience to the law. And so the point that Jesus is trying to make to the Jews is that the Jews identity in this case is based on their lineage, which means for them that their story is immersed in privilege and why they therefore believe that they actually don't need to be freed. And therefore, Jesus, when we see all of this opposition towards him, Jesus is therefore their enemy who's challenging the core. He's challenging their identity and saying it's not enough. And Jesus wants to do the same for you and for me. And what he's going to do is he's going to expose for us today the places where we are finding our identity and that they aren't actually enough, that they don't actually free us. And in actuality, they continue to enslave us. Well, how do the Jews respond to this challenge that Jesus presents? They answered him in verse 39a, Abraham is our father. Their response again is soaked in lineage, in identity and status. They're continuing to rely on their biology, which they believe will measure up in ethical and the moral realm as well. Jesus responds to them, 39b, Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing your works. You are doing the works your father did. So what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus says, well, if, if you were Abraham's children, you would not be seeking to kill me. If you were Abraham's children, you would not be seeking to kill me. And therefore, you're not children of Abraham. He says, then you have another father and you're doing his works. Now we're going to be told in a moment here who Jesus is saying their, their real father is. But let's see first how they respond. Verse 41b, they said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality, we have one father, even God. They're saying, Jesus, we're not born of sexual immorality. We, we have a proper lineage. And now they're, now they're saying, okay, Jesus, well, okay, maybe you can deny us Abraham, but you can't deny us God. We are children of God. 
Again, they believed that their identity as Jews, or in other words, their bloodline, and their obedience to the law is enough to be children of God. Jesus then responds, and I'm simply going to paraphrase what he says in verses 42 to 47. And he begins and he goes to the core, to the heart of their identity. And he says this, if God were your father, you would love me because I'm sent from God. He says, if God truly were your father, if you were offspring of Abraham and God were your father, you would love me because I'm sent from the father. So he says, therefore, God is not your father. He then says, secondly, the reason, the reason that you do not believe me is because your father is the devil and your will is to do his desires. Think about this. Imagine being the Jewish audience right there at this time. Jesus is telling them that their father is the devil. He then gives two characteristics of the devil, of Satan. He says he's a murderer. He's likely referring back to when, when um, Adam and Eve were in the garden and Satan tempted them to eat of the tree that they were not supposed to eat, which led to their death. So Satan, the devil, is a murderer. He says he's also a liar. Satan lied to Adam and Eve in the very beginning. He told them that they would not die. But guess what? They're dead. And so what Jesus is exposing to them is saying, listen, you, you can't be children of God. You must be children of the devil because you're believing a lie. And what does Satan, what does the devil want to do? He wants to lie to you about who I am. He wants to lie to you about who I am and then about who you are. Jesus then says, if God were your father, you would hear him and believe his words. If God were your father, you would hear him and you would believe his words. So he says, you do not belong to God. D.A. Carson writes, the children of God will so love the truth that they will believe in Jesus. The children of the devil will be so characterized by lies that they will not be able to accept the truth precisely because it is the truth. And these Jews are not believing Jesus to be who Jesus says that he is, and therefore they're believing a lie. And Jesus says, your father must be the devil. You're not truly children of God. So again, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is challenging their identity. He's challenging the story that they've been telling themselves. And he's saying this, firstly, he's saying your identity and story is not actually what you think. He's saying your vision of identity, your, your vision of your lineage being the core root of your identity and therefore your privilege does not actually lead to freedom. You're enslaved because you believe that I need to continue to work for my salvation, work for my value and worth before God. He's saying in order to uh, maintain this identity, you need to continue to strive. And so ultimately your identity is not actually what you think. It's lying to you. Secondly, he says, you're actually then also believing a lie about yourself. For Jesus, he's saying you're both more and less than this identity. You're both more than a Jew and that you're more valuable to God than, than this lineage, but you're also less than a Jew and that it's not the main thing. It's kind of like for me, if I, if I look to trying to define my identity as a father, I'm both more than a father and that I am a child of God, but also less than a father, that that's the being a father isn't the main thing, isn't the most important thing. And it shouldn't be the number one place that I find my identity, my status, my worth, and my value, or in my career. And that I'm both more than a pastor, I'm a child of God, but I'm, 
I'm less than a pastor and that I, I shouldn't find in pastoral work in what I do to find my place of identity. And that if I put it in that place, it's going to continue to disappoint me. I'm going to be discouraged and I'm going to play the comparison game. Thirdly, he says, connected to this, is that the lie of your identity is actually keeping you from me. Saying to the Jews, in holding to this identity of your lineage and this privilege complex that you deal with, is actually preventing you from coming to me. And for many of us, this is the case with our own identities, where we look to for our value and meaning, and when we say, this is who I am, and we work for it, and then it prevents us. We believe a lie about ourselves, and that this is all we are about. And then it prevents us from coming to Jesus to coming to Jesus in humility and receiving his grace. Well, how do the Jews respond? Think about what he's saying here. Jesus is rocking the very core and the foundation of who they believe themselves to be. And maybe Jesus is doing that for you this morning with the place that you're finding your identity. How do they respond? Well, they respond with a question, but essentially what they're saying is, you are a Samaritan and you are demon-possessed. In other words, the theological arguments that they've brought to Jesus haven't worked, and so they bring personal abuse against him. And they start by calling him a Samaritan. They say, you're a half-breed. It has racist connotations. They're saying, you're not a true Jew. I think what they're doing, they're looking down on another Jew, and they're saying, you're a non-Jew. The point here to see is that their Jewish identity and privilege leads them to a story where they actually believe that they are better than another group, in this case, racial. They then say, Jesus, you're demon-possessed. They're saying, we do not have the devil, you do. You're the one that's telling the lies. The point here is that the Jews believe that Jesus is actually turning on his own, his own identity politic, if you were to use that language. That Jesus as a Jew, how could you turn on other Jews? You must have a demon. You can't turn on us. You can think about some of the context of this in our own culture and the ongoing racism. Maybe some of you have heard the story recently of Ahmaud Arbery and the racist men that, that killed him when he was out for a run. I recognize my own privilege at part of that story that I run about three times a week and I've never once feared that in the middle of my run that I would be hunted down for running in a neighborhood that's not my own. Racism has no place in the kingdom of God. And that's ultimately what Jesus is starting to get at here. If we base our identity on these things, our primary identity, we'll see other people as enemies. What's Jesus' response to their, you're a Samaritan, you have a demon. Jesus says, no demon, <laughs> no demon. This is 49 to 51, I'm gonna paraphrase. No demon, my claims and behavior, he's saying, is simply obedience to my father. He says, secondly, listen, I know my father and you dishonor me. You're the ones who dishonor my father. By rejecting me, you reject the father. Jesus then says, the father seeks my glory. He is the judge. Jesus is saying, I'm not saying these things to you for my, my own fame or my own self-promotion. The father is the one that glorifies me. And then Jesus says, the person that keeps my word, who holds fast to my word, who, abi who abides in my word, will never see death. To abide in his word is to receive it, to believe it, to cleave to it, to obey it, and then to live by it. 
To receive Jesus, to trust Jesus, is to receive an identity and the story that he wants to invite us into. What is the Jews' response? It's a pretty poor comeback to start with in verse 52. They're like, nope, you have a demon. It's kind of like one of my kids when I say, hey, you're not telling the truth. And they go, no, you're not telling the truth. It's a poor comeback. They say, nope, you're the one with the demon. Then they say the prophets died. So how can you say he will never taste death? Now they're thinking about Abraham and some of the other prophets. And they're saying they trusted God, yet they died. And Jesus is, of course, speaking about spiritual death. And he's also making himself to be greater than Abraham and the other prophets. And that if you trust and you believe in my word, you will never taste nor see death. And so the Jews understand what he's saying or what he's getting at. And so they ask the question, they say, are you saying that you're greater than Abraham and the prophets? Who do you say that you are? You see, Jesus is not mincing words. His point is clearly coming across to them. They just can't believe that he would say such things. Well, how does Jesus respond? Verse 54 to 56, again, a paraphrase for you. Firstly, he says, I don't make myself out to be anyone. He says, I don't seek my own glory. He says, my father is the one, again, that brings glory to me. He is the one that honors me. Secondly, the father glorifies me. I know him and I am keeping his word. I'm doing what he asked me to do. I am abiding in my father's word. You are not. Thirdly, you do not honor my father. He goes back to the same point. You would honor my father if you honored me. And then he says, he goes to the point about Abraham. He says, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What is Jesus referring to? Well, he's referring to the day or the day of the Lord, meaning that he's talking about himself being the ultimate fulfillment of all of Abraham's hopes and joys through his own person and work. You can think back to Genesis 12 to roughly about 15, story of Abraham and and beyond in those chapters where God makes the promise to Abraham that through you and through your family, the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, who is the fulfillment of that blessing? Jesus. So Jesus is saying, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews respond. They say in verse 57, you aren't 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? You aren't 50 years old. How can you say this? That you've seen Abraham or know these things. And look what Jesus says in response. Verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if Jesus wanted to communicate that he simply existed before Abraham, he could have said something like, before Abraham was, I was. But he instead says, before Abraham was, I am, which has strong connections to Isaiah chapter 40 to 55. Here is an example from Isaiah 41 verse 4. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Or Isaiah 43, verse 13. Also henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. See what Jesus is claiming? He's claiming to be God, to have preexisted before Abraham, to be God, to be equal with God. Now, if you're confused about whether or not that's actually what he's saying, look at how the Jews respond. They pick up stones to throw at him. 
And so the Jews obviously interpret Jesus's claims to be blasphemous and a claim to deity as stoning was the actual prescribed punishment. Leviticus 24 verse 16 says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. So they, they're, they're appalled. They're, they're frustrated. They're, they're, they're so mad. They're angry. You can't say these things. And they pick up a stones to throw at him. And Jesus, we read, escapes out of the temple. Now, as we respond to this, to these, this back and forth, this dialogue, to the challenge of our identity, you know, you might be sitting there and you might be saying, okay, Jesus, you do you, I'll do me. Right? That's a very kind of cultural response to kind of identity. You know, as long as your identity doesn't really mess with me in particular, do any harm to anyone, you know, you do you, I'll do me. But if you look at what Jesus is claiming here, if you actually consider what Jesus is claiming, who he's claiming himself to be, you can't simply respond with, okay, you do you and, and I'll do me. Because what Jesus is saying is saying, this is truth. And if you say, well, you do, do you, I'll do me, what you're actually saying is, well, I believe that what I believe is truth and what Jesus is saying is not truth. But for what Jesus to say to be true, your truth can't be true. Truth, truths cannot coexist. It doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. So you can't say, well, simply, oh, Jesus, you know, you do you, I'll do me. You have to consider what Jesus is saying, what he's actually communicating and so what is Jesus communicating to these Jews? And what is he communicating to you and to me? He's telling them, he's saying, you need a new identity. You need to live in light of a different story. He's saying, according, according to Jesus, he's saying that your heart needs renovating. You need an internal transformation. The Jews have completely missed the part of this, in the prophets where they spoke about needing a new heart, needing a circumcised heart, needing to be changed. And that begins, according to Jesus, with trusting in him, abiding in him, and then receiving the identity that then he gives. I want you to go with me to a, a few other places in the New Testament. This is how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 to 17. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded all according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. He then says, verse 17, hear this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, someone who has abided, who's trusted in Christ, he is a new creation. Paul writes, the old has passed away. The old identity has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How about Galatians 2 verse 20? Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. I'm given a new identity, but Christ who lives in me. Or how about Galatians 3, 26 to 29? In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Sons or daughters of God through what? Faith in Jesus, abiding in Jesus. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, this new identity. There is neither Jew, listen to this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
This is going to blow off the doors of the Jewish identity and belief system. Now Greeks are permitted into the kingdom of God to be offspring, to be sons and daughters of God? Yes, Jesus says. Anyone who believes in me, anyone who abides in me, takes on this new identity. The old is gone, the new has come. You are transformed. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. You do not need to simply come from the Jewish lineage. If you trust in Christ, you're all offspring of Abraham, sons and daughters of God, heirs according to the promise. This is incredible. It should shake the core of our identity because the identity and the story that what Jesus is saying here, it's an identity that we receive from him, not on our own merits, not on our own bits of work. We simply receive it from him. It's received. The identity that Jesus gives and the story that he gives us, it's received. It's not achieved. And this identity that we receive in Christ tells us these things. It says that we are new. We are blessed. We are appreciated. We are saved. We're reconciled. We're heard. We're gifted. We're forgiven. We're adopted. We're loved. We're rewarded. And we are victorious. This identity is not based on lineage, race, privilege, gender, sexual orientation, occupation, status, language, or family of origin. And it's not, as I said before, that these things don't matter, but they're not the most important thing about us. The most important thing about us when we trust Christ is that now we are children of God. We are in Christ. It's the difference between saying, hi, my name is Matt and I'm a pastor. Versus, hi, my name is Matt. I'm a son, loved, chosen, forgiven by God who happens to do pastoral work. Or, hi, my name is blank. I'm a mother. And being a mother is where you find your identity. It's find your worth. It also becomes the place where you feel and risk all your, your life and your satisfaction. It becomes deeply disappointing. Instead, in Christ, we, we change that. And we say, hi, my name is blank. I'm a daughter of the most high God and he loves me. I'm victorious. I'm rewarded in Christ. And I just so happen to be a mother. Do you see the, the freedom that comes from that, that I am not defined by all of these categories? Do you see how incredible that is? And it actually levels out the playing field of all people across race, across all these categories and says, we all, if we believe into Christ, if we abide in Christ, we are all sons and daughters of God. Do you see how when we, when we read the scriptures, we learn that human beings are the only created beings made in the image of God. We are all image bearers of God. And then on the ground, we, we need to recognize that we're all going to be saved by the same grace. No one has a leg up. We are all saved by the same grace of God. This identity, it's received. It's not achieved. It's given to us by Jesus. Another reality of this identity that Jesus gives us is that it's eternal. If your identity, hear me, if your identity is based on something that is temporary, your identity is temporary. But if your identity is based on something that is eternal, it's forever. It can't be taken away from you. I think of when I was in high school, my identity and being in that band, that was a temporary identity. 
and all these things that we look to for meaning and significance or we find our identity or we want to find this true self, these things can be taken and they're not eternal. But what is eternal has been given to us by God when we abide in Christ, when we trust Christ. And then thirdly, this identity is freeing. This identity is freeing. If we're honest, so many of us are enslaved to the places that we find our identity, to the stories that we tell ourselves. And this identity that's given to us from Christ is freeing. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We no longer are enslaved to delighting in things other than God. When God looks at us, he looks at us in Christ and he sees Christ's perfection. And while we're still on the journey as followers of Jesus, of our sanctification, we've been forgiven. You've been forgiven for not resting and delighting in God and Christ yesterday. You've been forgiven for not resting and delighting in Christ today. And you're forgiven for not delighting and resting in Christ tomorrow. That comes with being in Christ when we receive his identity as children beloved by God. And then we're also freed, as I've already said, but it's so important to say again, from maintaining and working to maintain the identities that we want other people to see or that we create because we want to receive and accept ourselves. There's so much work connected with that. You see it all over social media, people trying to maintain these identities and it will crush you because you'll be trying to achieve it and it will never truly give you what you want it to give you because the truth is that you were made in the image of God and there is a God-sized hole in your heart that only he can fill and he fills it when we trust in Jesus for our salvation, for our identity, for our purpose, for our value, for our significance and we receive this new identity, blessed, loved, Adopted, forgiven, victorious, free. I want you to hear a story now from somebody that found their identity in other things and then came to know Jesus and placed their value and identity in him. Well, as we close today, I want to ask you the question, where are you finding your identity? What are you looking to for meaning? What are you looking to? What are you trusting in? And if it's not Christ, it's going to fall short. It's not going to live up to the desire that you have for it or for yourself. I would encourage you today, maybe even for the first time, to trust Christ, to abide in Christ. Let me pray for you. So God, I pray for whoever is tuning in today, that you would maybe for the very first time, rescue, free, and release these people from finding their identity in anything other than you. We are made in your image and you want us to be saved to become your children. And when we are children, that's the most important thing, that we are loved and accepted by our Father. So God, may those of us who believe this to be true already, may we be reminded of where to find our identity and may you, Jesus, send us out and may we go as children of the Father, called to love and to serve and to share the gospel with others, this good news about identity. We love you. And we pray in Guelph as it is in heaven. Amen.